A few days ago, I was at a meeting with some uh, pastors, and uh, someone invited us to this big outreach event that's coming up. And uh, this is, uh, I won't say the name, but some big-name pastors come in and giving a message, and some big-name Christian band has come in, and they're uh, coming to the Baltimore area. And essentially what they're doing is it's like a, a Billy Graham kind of crusade. And um, they're not calling it a crusade because that term is a little bit outdated now, but functionally it's the sort of thing where you rent a big venue, you pack it with a lot of uh, uh, people and the non-Christian friends, and you preach a sermon, you have an altar call, that sort of thing. And maybe I'm skeptical, but my first reaction was, will that work? Does this sort of thing work today in 2023? Now, obviously, it certainly can work. You know, I remember when I, uh, when I was in middle school or high school, I went to one of these big crusades. Uh, I was already Christian, but I just went to just tag along. And it was huge. We rented out this big stadium, and um, it seemed like thousands of people walked down and responded to this altar call. So, of course, God can use any means he wants to bring to himself. But when I think about some of the friends I have who are non-Christians, and um, I just, it's really hard for me to envision them attending something like this, and it's definitely hard for me to envision them walking down the aisle to respond to an altar call. Now, I think part of that is a lack of faith on my part, because I'm a natural skeptic, and sometimes I don't believe that God can do the things he actually says he can do. Uh, so I do need to learn to grow in trusting that God can change hearts, that God can bring dead people to life, and I think that's true. But I also think there's a part of the skepticism, skepticism on my part that comes from a relatively accurate assessment of where our culture is at, or maybe an awareness of where our culture is at, such that I realized that there are things that maybe were more effective, you know, a few generations ago that might not be as effective today. And it's not saying that they don't always work. Sometimes they still can work. But I would just say statistically, they don't work as well as they used to in the past. You know, when I think about um, the Crusades, for example, in 19... I'm not talking about the medieval Crusades. That's another matter. But the modern evangelical Crusades... In 1973, for example, Billy Graham had a crusade in South Korea. And over 3 million people showed up. And 75,000 people indicated they wanted to follow Jesus. And uh, just those numbers are so mind-boggling. It's just so hard for me to imagine something like that could happen uh, in the 21st century America. Um, you know, and, and I think it's, you know, uh, things have changed over time. You know, blockbuster video used to be really big in the 90s, and we don't really do that sort of thing anymore. So sometimes I've wondered, like, are crusades kind of similar? Maybe they had a day, they had an age, they had a purpose for a time period, and they're not um, around, well, they're not as effective anymore. The appeal isn't there anymore. And why is that? Well, I think there's a few cultural things going on. You know, I think one is our culture as a whole, you know, we're sort of more anti-big things in general. You know, this is sort of, I'm just speaking in broad strokes, but a lot of people, they don't like big pharma, big tech, big oil, things like that. And so they sort of put megachurches in that category and crusades in that category. So I think that's part of it. I think there's also, sometimes people are wary of Christian celebrity culture. And I would say rightly so. There's been a staggering number of prominent Christian leaders uh, in the past 10, 20 years who've uh, had some moral failings. And, um, and so sometimes people wonder, do we really want to give people this sort of platform like that? But I think the biggest reason why some of these crusades might not be as effective is because our country's demographics have changed. Our country's demographics have changed, and we are now in a very pluralist, postmodern, post-Christian society. Here's a graph um, 
over here and that breaks down the religious demographics of America by generation. And this is how we stand today. Well, it's technically 2021, I believe. And as you can see, so 50% of the silent generation, those born between 1928 and 1945, uh, are Protestant, and 22% are Catholic. And you can see with every successive generation, uh, the Christian population, that's the purple and the orange, uh, they have been dropping. And in contrast, 48% of Gen Z, that's the last bar, that's the blue, now identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. You see, I think, uh, you know, crusades, they work really well in a context in which many people in society would be what I would call almost Christians. And almost Christian is someone who more or less has a Christian worldview already. They probably already believe in a God. They already believe in sin. They already believe they do things that are wrong. They already believe that they might even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They're open to the idea. They're maybe on the fence about the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, but they're almost Christians. And so what happens is they have mostly Christian beliefs already, but they're, they're just kind of jumbled up in their minds, and they just need someone to flip the switch, or they just need someone to shake them up a little bit for things to fall in place. And so what you do with those sort of folks is you bring them to an event like a crusade, and they feel convicted of their sin. They, they, they go, you know what, I do need to take my life seriously, and there's an altar call opportunity, and they respond. Um, however, and so it's kind of like um, starting a fire. So when you start a fire, what you, what you need before you start a fire is some wood or some fuel. And so you, the, the wood is there, and then you just light the fire. So a lot of these folks who are almost Christians, the wood's already there. So you just bring them to a place, and you light the fire, and, they, and then the fire starts. But many Americans today, they're not almost Christians. They're the opposite. They're almost as far away from Christianity as possible. They might not believe in a God. They might not believe in sin. They might not believe in heaven and hell and so on. And so if they go to a crusade, it's almost like someone speaking a foreign language to them. And every line, they'd be going, oh, I don't know if I would believe that. Oh, that doesn't really make sense. You know, if, if someone says, you know, God created the world, they would go, oh, no, that's, I learned about that already. That's the Big Bang, not, not God. Or if someone would go, Jesus died for your sin, they might go, how would you be so presumptuous to assume that I'm a sinner, like that's, that's pretty judgmental. And so there's all these counter-arguments going on in their mind because their, their views of the world are so different from the views of Christianity. And, um, and so you can't just light the fire because there's nothing to light. The wood isn't there. And so in order to share the gospel effectively, what you gotta do first is you help them find the wood. In other words, you help them to create a, a Christian worldview, and then the gospel makes sense. Um, so you have to show over time why your view of the world, the Christian view of the world, is right, and why their view of the world is wrong, and that's sort of the gathering the wood part, and then when you light the fire, then, then you have fuel to actually, um, for them to actually believe. So our question is then, what can we do? How can we reach a culture, like a 21st century America, where the Christian gospel seems so foreign to them. Well, that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, in the first half of Acts, people were, were speaking primarily to Jews. And Jewish folks, they had, they, many of them were almost Christians in that they had worldviews that were very similar to what you know, Christians believed. They already believed in God. They were already only worshipped one God as opposed to many gods. They already had some scriptures in the Old Testament that they adhered to. They already were looking forward to a Messiah and things like that. And so they already had a lot of these places and pieces in place. And it was just a matter of people connecting the dots for them, lighting the fire. However, 
uh, as the church expanded, they were operating more and more in Gentile context, and they were interacting with folks who were very different. Um, they, they had very different views of the world. And, uh, and sometimes the Christian faith, when it was communicated, it seems like a very foreign concept. And we see that uh, as a clear example here in Acts 17. So in Acts 17, uh, Paul is talking uh, to the church in Athens. And this is, let's just start off by reading verses 16, 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. He, so he summarized, uh, Paul, his party split up. Some people went somewhere else. He went to Athens, okay? He's waiting for his party somewhere else. Uh, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, which is not common in Jewish context. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, long story short, these people have very different worldviews, not Jewish again, began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I love this expression, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, because I think that's how a lot of people today think about Christianity. When they think about the Christian gospel, the, the message is so foreign, so strange, that it, it's, they have to hear it multiple times or even comprehend what you're trying to talk about, because it's, it's, it's like a different language to them. Um, well, let's keep going, uh, because I think from Paul, we can sort of pick up what Paul does in this context. And I think it gives us hope for how we can communicate with people who are very different from us, who may think of Christianity as very foreign. All right, so let's see what Paul does. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Uh, rather, actually, hold on. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Sorry. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of the lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design, not skill. Oh, sorry, human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. All right, so I'm going to unpack this a little bit. I think it's brilliant what Paul does, okay? So what Paul firstly does is he points out the truth in their worldview, the truths in their situation, the positive qualities in their culture. He says, I observe that you are very religious. And then he comments on that desire to grow in that positive quality. He says, I even see that you have this altar built to an unknown God. 
and he commends them for it. And then what he does is he says, I'm going to give you the answer you're looking for. I'm going to show you who this unknown God is that you've constructed this altar for. And so this is interesting because he doesn't directly call them out for being wrong. Like what he could have done is says, you have many idols. Idol worship is bad. Polytheism is bad. He's not doing that. What he's saying, he, he, he sort of immerses himself in their worldview. In their worldview, they have many idols and they have many gods. And he says, that's positive that you are religious, that you desire to worship God. That's a good thing. He adopts a worldview. He operates within it. And then what he does is he brings their worldview to a natural completion with the gospel. And he's saying, in order for, he says, you have a good worldview. There's something positive about it, but it's not complete. There's things that are missing in it. So let me show you what's missing in your worldview. And that's very different, I think, from what many people do today in which it's like a culture war. They're saying your worldview is wrong, my worldview is right. Let me show you why my worldview is right. And obviously he does confront them eventually about things that are wrong in their worldview. Right? He says, uh, for example, you have a bunch of temples built for gods. You know, if God really was all-powerful, he wouldn't live in a temple. So he's, he's you know, challenging uh, what they believe. And he also says, you know, uh, you have all these rituals that you're doing to please God, but, you know, if God made everything, he doesn't need anything from you. God is not a taker. He's a giver, right? He says that to them. And he says, you know, you believe, a lot, as a lot of the Greeks did, that, you know, gods are unconcerned about human affairs. But let me tell you, if, you know, I believe God actually longs for a relationship with you. He's actually wanting people to seek him out and find him. So he is challenging aspects about the worldview while at the same time affirming other aspects of the worldview. And then here's a kicker. This is what I find absolutely brilliant. In verse 28, he quotes... Oh, sorry, I forgot about this line. Okay, I'm going to get back to that. Okay, he quotes, verse 28, two Greek poets. And these are the lines he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So these are two different Greek poets. One is Epimenides, and the other is Aratus, and we have those writings today. And uh, what he's doing is he's saying, um, you're wrong not because my Bible tells, tells me so, but you're wrong because your own poet tells you so. So what he's doing, he's saying your own worldview, your own leaders in society, your own, he's, it's, it's almost like the equivalent of us, you know, quoting like the Declaration of Independence or something like that, where we're, or cor, we're, we're quoting an authoritative figure in their society, and we're saying you're wrong not because I tell you so, but because your own leaders and your heroes of old, they tell you so. Um, and interestingly, um, if you look up these Greek quotes in their original context, they're not talking about the God of Israel. Obviously, they're not, they don't acknowledge the God of Israel. They're talking about Zeus. If you read these original poems, they're praising who Zeus is. Zeus, you know, the sky god. You see him in Hercules, throws thunderbolts. That's Zeus, okay? The poems are saying that in Zeus, we live and move and have our being, and that we are Zeus's offspring. So that's what these poems are talking about. So that's, that sort of brings up a lot of questions then, because you might wonder, how could Paul quote these Greek poets about Zeus and then apply them to his own God? Um, and you might even wonder, and some people have even suggested this, is Paul saying that his God is Zeus, that, God, that the God of Israel is the God of Greece, and that they're the same God? And some people would even say this, that they would say, Maybe this is evidence that it doesn't really matter what religion you believe. We all have the same God anyway. We just have different names, okay? 
So some people would even say that. So what do we make of all this? Well, I think, I think we want to clarify a few things. So this is Acts 14. I think this is worth looking at. This is another scene in which Zeus is mentioned. So let's just dig in. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they were preaching in this city called Lystra, and then they performed this miracle. People are uh, um, shouting, you know, the gods have come down to us in human form. And then in, in the scene, they call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, and they want to bring sacrifice to him and worship them. Okay, so this is how Paul responds. Uh, Acts 14, 14 to 15. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay, so in this context, I mean, you can, you can read the whole chapter later if you want for more of a context. But in this chapter, Paul seems pretty clear he does not believe in Zeus. Okay, he does not worship Zeus. He is saying, turn from Zeus. He seems to be calling Zeus worthless things, okay? So he says, turn from Zeus to the living God. So in his mind, it's pretty clear he doesn't think Zeus and his God are the same God, right? So I think that's clear. It's not the case that, you know, the whole world has one religion and we just have different names for our gods, but it's all basically the same thing anyways, because there is a turning. Paul is encouraging us to turn from one God to the other. So then why, the, why does Paul in Acts 17 quote these poems about Zeus? So what do we make of that? So I think what Paul is doing is, is similar to what he's doing with this altitude and unknown God in that he is stepping inside their worldview and he is saying that there's, there are components of truth in their worldview. And he's saying that these components of truth in their worldview are actually clues about the real living God. I think that's what he's doing. And um, interestingly, uh, the Apostle John also does a similar thing when he writes the book of John. In the very beginning, he starts off the book by saying, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, in the Greek, this word word is logos, uh, which is a very religiously packed term in that time. It, it, so we translate it as word, but back in those days, it meant all sorts of things. And this word logos was used primarily in philosophical and religious contexts. And so, I mean, Aristotle used it, and he meant things with it. The Stoics used it. Philo used it. So a lot of different Greek philosophers use this term. And essentially, this concept of logos was there's this principle of order, this principle of reason that governed the whole world, that animated the universe. And, and, and so that's the terms, interestingly, that John used to in, when he started off his gospel. And... Um, the way it was understood, we don't really have a concept for it today. I think the most similar thing we can come up with is the force from Star Wars. Okay, when you think about without the lightning and stuff like that, okay? <laughs> disregard the lightning and disregard the mind reading, okay, all that stuff. But the force in Star Wars, the idea that there's this thing that permeates the universe and it's everywhere and it sort of governs everything and there's law and order and natural order, you know, that whole thing. That's how a lot of people view the Logos at the time. And so it's interesting that John introduces this concept. And then he says in verse 14, the word became flesh. The logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And so you might wonder when John used this word logos, was he embracing or endorsing this philosophy at the time that there was this force thing that governed the universe? I don't think so. I don't think that's what John was doing. I think what John was doing was similar to what Paul was doing 
in that they were intentionally using these religious ideas at the time, these religious concepts, the religious terms that were loaded with meaning to, as, a, as a way to step inside people's worldviews and then to explain that your worldviews are missing, in a, a missing a component. And let me tell you what you're missing. Okay, it's nice to have this force, this idea, this reason, this order, whatever. But you know what would be more amazing is if that thing stepped into the world and became a human being. And that's what Jesus did. And I think same thing, Paul's doing, you know, I think it's great, you know, that Zeus is, you know, he, he does all these things, whatever, but you won't know be great is if uh, this person actually stepped into this world and then actually rose from the dead in our midst. And so what they're doing is saying, they're not endorsing the whole belief system, but they're highlighting certain aspects of it and then bring it to completion in the gospel. There's an interesting quote from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis on this. And um, it's a little bit controversial, but I'll read it first and then, and then we can talk about it, okay? There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the fact, I'm sorry, who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Okay, so um, so I think, so I'm... I'm iffy on this this quote, okay? So just, just to show my cards. I don't know if I would fully affirm what C.S. Lewis is saying because he seems to be implying that there can be people in other religions and they don't claim the name of Christ. They don't call themselves Christians, but they actually belong to Christ. And so, so I think that gets a little bit hairy. You know, are you really saved by Christ alone if that's the case? But anyways, but I think what there's a, an idea here that I do want to affirm, uh, which is, that there are these people out there, they don't call themselves Christians, but what C.S. Lewis is saying, by God's secret influence, they're concentrating on the parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity. And as a result, they're closer to Christ than they actually realize. And I do think that is true because I think that is what's going on in Acts 17. There are these people who are genuinely seeking out God. They even have an altar to an unknown God. They're looking for truth. They're looking for God. And Paul is saying, oh, let me just connect the dots. Let me just provide for you what you are actually looking for. So what Paul and John, what they're doing, they're immersing themselves in the worldviews of their audiences, and they're highlighting the aspects of their worldview that actually point to the Christian faith, that align with the Christian faith. And they're, they're showing them, oh, what you are looking for is the Christian faith. What you're looking for is the gospel. And I think there are... Um, Tremendous implications for that when we think about how we do evangelism today. You know, sometimes when we do evangelism, we're offering people what they're not looking for. Okay. We have this sort of black and white approach. We say, okay, you have this worldview. It's wrong. Okay. This is my worldview. It's right. I know you don't care about this. I know you're not looking for this, but let me tell you this because this is right. So I don't think that's what Paul and John were doing here. I'm not saying that's not, you know, you shouldn't do that ever, but I don't think that's what Paul and John are doing. I think what they're doing is saying, they're saying, okay, you have this worldview. Let me tell you, there are aspects about your worldview that are right, but it's incomplete. And let me tell you the gospel because that will complete your worldview and that will make what you already believe even better. Um, so I think that's what we got to do today. Paul is not 
throwing their worldview out the window. He is stepping inside of it, operating inside of it, and explaining how the gospel completes a worldview. Okay, so, so I think this is an important principle. Don't throw, when you're talking to someone who has a very different worldview, don't throw the worldview out the window. Show them that their worldview actually is fulfilled in the Christian gospel. There are aspects of it that are right, there are aspects of it that are wrong, but it is actually going to be better when the gospel completes it, okay? So let's practice, okay? Let's just go through a few examples, just so, because we're talking sort of in the clouds right now, all right? How do we step inside someone's worldview and explain that the gospel completes their worldview? Okay, so here's just some examples. Let's say someone is, um, I'm thinking about Valentine's Day, all right? Someone has relationship issues. Okay, maybe they're single and they, they just, they, they're waiting and they can't find anybody. Or maybe they are in a relationship, but they're just having marital issues or something like that. Okay, here's what you can do. You can, you can affirm the truth in their situation, meaning you can say something like, you know what, I'm sorry you're going through this. It's tough to be alone or it's tough to feel like a lack of intimacy, whatever. Okay, it seems like you're looking for support or love and nothing's working. And then what you do, so... I understand this is not a religious system, but I'll, I'll get to other examples later, okay? But what we can do is you say, you know what, can I tell you something? You know, I have highs and lows in my marriage, and, um, it, and I recognize that, you know, although I try to be better, sometimes I just have to come to the grips with the fact that the thing I'm most looking for in life is not my marriage. The love I really want, the stability I really want, the intimacy I really want, you know, I, I, have this, I had this idea once upon a time that I would find that in marriage, but I always come up short, and I realize, you know, there's always things that are, I feel incomplete. The aspirations I had when I first got married sometimes seem like a pipe dream, and I think the reason is because, I'm not knocking my marriage, I have a great marriage, okay? But I think the reason is because marriage was never meant to be an end-all, be-all. Marriage was always a little glimpse of the divine marriage, and in the Bible, God talks about how he is a groom, and his people are the bride. And he loves his bride, and he forgives his bride, and he powers his bride, empowers his bride, he beautifies his bride. And I think that's actually what we are looking for when we yearn for a good marriage. We are yearning for a relationship with God. So do you see what we're doing? We are saying, okay, this thing that you want, a good marriage or something, that is a great thing. But, you know, I recognize it's incomplete because the, our earthly marriage will never solve all of our problems. It's not the thing we're truly looking for. It's just a shadow, a glimpse of our ultimate marriage, which is our relationship with God, okay? Here's another example. Let's say you're talking to someone who's really concerned about social justice. Really concerned about social justice. You can sort of fill in the blank, whatever the issue is. Income inequality, immigration, police brutality. But here's what you can do. First, you affirm their situation. You go, you know, I'm so glad that you have a heart for justice. I'm so glad that you want the world to be a better place, but can I tell you something? I think you're missing something because it's, it seems like in your mind the solution is, you know, better politicians or better schools or better police policies or better environmental policies or whatever. And I'll say, I think all of those things may help, but ultimately they'll all fall short. We'll always have corruption. We'll always have exploitation. We'll always have abuse. So I think what you're actually looking for is the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it's ruled by the Prince of Peace and it's promised that one day everything will be made right, everything will be made new, and all wrongs will be righted. I think that's really what you're looking for. Okay, so what are you, what are you doing? You're stepping inside the worldview, you're affirming that this desire they have is a good desire, 
and you're telling them that what they're actually looking for, their supposed altar to an unknown God, is actually Christianity, the Christian faith. Okay, one more example, okay? Let's say you're talking to someone who doesn't like their body, their physical body. Maybe they think they're too fat or too ugly, or maybe, this might be a little more controversial, they think they have the wrong gender. They're trans, okay? They're born with the wrong biological sex. Whatever the case, they think that they're they need to do something to their body to make their body better, at least in their eyes. And here's what you can do. You can affirm the truth in their situation, which is, you say, I understand you don't like the way you are. I understand you don't feel right in your body. You feel out of place. It seems like your, what you view to be your true identity, it doesn't align with your biology. Okay? And that must be a horrible feeling. Can I tell you something? You know, sometimes I don't like my body either. You know, and I don't know if I ever will, at least in its current state. Um, I think there's always going to be this tension between who I truly am and who I want to be. Who I am right now and who I want to be. There's always going to be that tension, and I don't think that can be solved with a better diet. I don't think it can be solved with some medical intervention. I think our bodies are fundamentally broken and we feel out of place because we've been cut off from the source of life. And so what we need is God himself. What we need is not some biological changes. What we need is to become a new creation. What we need to become is, uh, we need to, what we need to have is a, not a new body part or something, but we need a new heart. We need God to change us and transform us from the inside out and that's when we will feel complete. That's when we'll feel glorified. And so what we're doing is we are, again, we are affirming some aspects of what they are experiencing. Okay, we're saying these desires you have, they're not bad desires, okay, but you are missing a critical component, which is the gospel. And when you actually understand the gospel and you see how it is actually a, a perfect match to the things that you actually want in life, then everything makes sense. Okay, so obviously I, I'm sort of going this in a really quick fashion and, uh, you know, maybe this won't happen in one conversation and maybe you won't be as blunt as me or, or you know, that sort of thing. But I'm just sort of laying out the flow of the argument. So what we're doing is we're not necessarily telling people that they're wrong, at least right off the bat, okay? But we're telling them uh, that there are some things that you actually are looking for. They're not things out there that don't seem relevant to you, that are sort of you don't really, they sound foreign and strange to you, but they're things that you actually want. They're things that you're looking for in your own worldview, in your own belief system. Okay, well, let's finish up the passage. Verse 32. Um, when they, the Athenians, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Tamaris, and a number of others. I love how this ends because this gives me hope. Because even though Paul was speaking to an audience with radically different worldviews, clearly people believe. They, they believe. Well, some of them at least. And I think it means for us, even when we speak to people with radically different worldviews, people may believe. Now I do want to point out there is one challenge that we have in our culture that Paul doesn't have, which is that Paul, he was speaking to a pre-Christian culture, a culture that was never exposed to the gospel before, whereas many of us, we operate in a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture, and what that means is uh, 
Christianity for a lot of folks, it's not novelty the way it was to the Greeks. It's something where people look at and they go, oh, we already tried that and it didn't work. As a culture, I think a lot of people have that sort of assumption. Christianity is this thing that we tried out. You know, that was the Middle Ages. You know, that was, uh, you know, Revolutionary War time period or whatever. That was maybe the 50s. But we tried that out and, you know, now we know that science was just the opium for the, ma I mean, religion was an opium for the masses and we have science now. And so we moved on. So I think a lot of people have that sort of worldview. It's kind of like uh, they were at a store, they went to the dressing room and tried on some clothes and go, you know, it doesn't fit, not for me. And then now they moved on. So I want to suggest, but I want to suggest, I think the reason why a lot of people assume Christianity doesn't work for them is because they think they've tried Christianity when actually they didn't at all. Well, they tried some tarnished, corrupted version of Christianity and not the true Christian faith. Um, let's imagine you say someone, let's imagine you see someone, you meet someone, this is an analogy, and they say, I don't like potatoes, okay? And then you ask, oh, why don't you like potatoes? And they go, well, because, you know, it's too hard to eat and it doesn't have flavor. And they go, oh, what do you mean? And then you sort of have a conversation with them, and then you've learned, you learn that they've never actually tried cooked, cooked potatoes before, okay? They've only had raw potatoes, okay? So what would you conclude? Would you conclude, oh, they're right, they don't like potatoes? No, you would conclude, they just never tried properly cooked potatoes, okay? They've never had mashed potatoes or french fries or hash browns or anything like that, okay? And so you'll realize the problem is that they don't like potatoes. They don't like cooked potatoes. And because they assume they've tried potatoes before, they associate potatoes with being hard and flavorless, so they're not willing to try it again. And I think that's how a lot of people in our culture think about Christianity, they think, they, they, have this, they have this very one-dimensional view of Christianity, and they tried it before, but in actuality, they never actually did. They tried some strange version, some corrupted version of Christianity, but it wasn't the way it was meant to be experienced. Uh, maybe they tried to be, maybe they even tried to be a Christian in the past before, but maybe the things that were emphasized, it just seemed so foreign, so out of touch, so not relevant, so they say, you know, I tried that, it didn't work out. So I think what we need today are Christians who know how to cook potatoes properly. Or in other words, we need Christians who know how to communicate the gospel in a way so that people understand, oh, this is totally relevant to me. This is exactly what I'm looking for. This satisfies my taste buds. This is the thing that lines up with my core desires in life. We need to show them that Christianity actually fits into their worldview. And it is a, better, is a better version of their worldview than they actually currently have. Um, I want to close with this excerpt from Blaise Pascal. This is written over 300 years ago, but I think it is totally appropriate. And it's a little bit long, but I, I was trying to cut the quote, but the whole thing is pretty good. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, okay? All men seek happiness. And women too, okay? There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive toward this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. Yet, for many years, no one without faith has ever re reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming. All men complain. Princes, subjects, nobles, commoners, old, young, strong, weak, learned, 
ignorant, healthy, sick, in every country, at every time, of all ages, in all conditions. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. So what is Pascal saying? He's saying, we're all looking for something. We all have different names for it. We can call it happiness, we can call it peace, we can call it satisfaction, we can call it uh, mission, purpose. We're all looking for something. And what he's saying is this is an infinite abyss inside of our hearts. Nothing can fulfill it except for an infinite God. Everybody is looking to fulfill, fill this thing that's in their hearts that they're looking for. And we all have created these worldviews in order to scratch that itch, to meet that need. The ancient Greeks in Athens were looking for, the, for that thing. Your non-Christian friends, neighbors, co-workers, they're looking for that thing. And we believe as Christians that what they're looking for is God. That is what they're seeking. So I encourage you, step inside the worldviews. Show them that this craving, this helplessness, this infinite abyss, what they're yearning for is actually the strange idea to people's ears, which is the gospel. The Christian gospel that Jesus died, he rose again, and he's welcomed us into the kingdom of God. I'd like to invite the music team up, and then we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for uh, this chance you've given us to just unpack this passage from Acts 17 and just to reflect on this insightful evangelism strategy that Paul employs um, in sharing the gospel to those who are so s different from uh, the Christian worldview. And God, I pray that that would give us hope so that when we share the gospel with those who are different from us, that we'd be able to speak with boldness and clarity. And I pray that you'd help us to exercise discernment in this matter, because I think so, so many of us, we're so jaded by evangelism, we're so even afraid of evangelism, because we just feel like we're shoving things down people's throats, we're offering people things they don't want. But God, help us to rethink this whole thing. Help us to see that people everywhere they're building these altars to unknown gods. They're looking for you. And help us to, to be there the moment they need you and to offer the solution that they're so desperately looking for. Um, I pray that you help us to identify those moments, those opportunities to give the answers when people are searching. I pray that we would be your hands and feet and your mouths to sharing the gospel to seeking out the lost, to reconciling the world to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.